This is Tuesday Morning Grind, episode number 14, and today we have the legend, Mike Weber. Mike is a security leader and penetration tester with about 20 years of experience. He's the former VP of Coal Fire Labs and helped take that business from about four to about 100 people. Um, a lot of certifications to your name that I won't go on and list. Um, past speaker at RSA Conference, Black Hat, Cloud Security Alliance, and many more. Welcome, Mike. Thanks for being here, man. I'm excited. Thanks, Christian. Thanks for having me on. So I've talked to a couple of my teammates, and they're pretty pumped that, that you're joining us today. And I think we just wanted to start off, man. I, I want to hear your story. Like, you've had a pretty cool ride, you know, becoming a pen tester, leading a practice, and now kind of going off and doing the next thing. So, you know, could you could you start off with maybe just some of your story, how you got to where you are today? Sure. So how I got to the, the path of how I got to where I am today. Yeah, uh, it's not much of a path. So, you know, ultimately, geez, if you want to go way back, uh, it started back in the 70s, like the late 70s and early 80s, really, uh, as a geek uh, kid who was just into computers and cars and that sort of thing. Um, then, you know, college came around and uh, uh, I decided that being a rock star was a lot cooler than being a mechanical engineer. Um, so I pursued that path for a while, but uh, to fast forward a bunch of years there, um, my first job in IT uh, was ultimately a, a result of uh, developing some uh, software that was a needs-based issue. Um, addressed that, uh, ended up getting the attention of some people in the organization, got my job, my job, uh, a job in IT. Uh, and then uh, my next, the way I got into security was well, pretty much uh, understanding that there was an opportunity to be able to use development skills for security, and that was pretty much the coolest thing I'd ever heard of. It's like, wait a minute, I can go hack software yeah. because of just because, just because anybody can do it. And uh, that was that was the case. So I started um, down the path of as a security analyst, uh, working network security at uh, Rocky Flats, the bomb plant here in uh, Golden, Colorado. So start with some pretty high security bar and then uh, working it from there. Um, after there, I became a consultant and uh, here I am. Was there a time in your career when, when you realized, okay, security is going to be a thing because it's like at first it's IT or it's maybe, you know, network administration or something. Was there kind of a pivot where you had an epiphany or anything where you're like, okay, security is a career for me and this is important? There was. So it's kind of a combination of things. I was working for a company that made uh, basically middleware and temp terminal emulation products for PIC style multi-value databases. Very niche company. Um, and yeah. the, when we were working with it, you know, I, troubleshooting whether the connection is working or not, just, uh, you know, sniffing traffic, sniffing traffic, being able to watch, uh, you know, the credentials go across uh, in clear text. I was like, seriously? And this is like 1998. Um, at the time, I'm like, this is awesome. I can't, you know, and that's what got me interested in security. Uh, then getting the job as a network analyst, realizing that I can actually do what I want to do uh, in security and just, just drive that because it was so cool being able to, you know, uh, basically think yourself out of a puzzle uh, from a troubleshooting yeah. perspective, then the security thing just raised its head and it's like, wow, this is, this is a good marriage uh, of two really neat things. Yeah, absolutely. So one thing I'm personally and selfishly interested in is uh, like you, you grew a pretty significant pen test practice while you were at Coal Fire uh, from four to a hundred, probably one of the larger dedicated pen testing practices in the country. Um, when you took that job and I guess there were four or five of you, it sounded like it was a pretty small team. 
did you have a vision for that growing the way it did or, or were you like where was your head at when you were ready to grow that and had that opportunity well it's a funny question right vision or dream right I mean, it's kind of a dream i knew what i wanted to do um yeah. i'd been in security and security consulting for a while um doing you know uh, security assessments risk assessments penetration testing vulnerability so it's not just the gamut of everything you do as a consultant um yeah. And knowing what I wanted to do, I wanted to be one of those revered companies at the time um, that you know was uh, was a leader in the industry, um, basically a thought leader in information security, um, and that's where I wanted to get. But I started with an organization that had uh, four people, four individuals in uh, the offensive security team that we uh, that we called Labs, um, and quickly burnt that down to one person, and uh, and then built it back up. And you know, I tell you, it was. You know, it was 2010, 11, uh, 2011 uh, when I took over that team and being able to build that team at that rate uh, over, you know, basically nine years um, organically for the most part, it's, it's a challenge. It's a challenge to be able to, uh, to be able to, you know, keep onboarding individuals with those skills because yeah. the vision that I had of being the industry leader, right, it's the, it's the ultimately to get to the top of the heap. Um, and to do that, I mean, you can't just hire absolutely everybody, right? There's a, there's a process of being able to find that right candidate, be able to grow that candidate um, to get to where we need to go. So uh, it, was, it was a challenge. I mean, it was the most uh, dynamic environment I've ever been in, really. Yeah. So let's talk about that because I know one of the problems or challenges that we have at Risk360 is, you know, there's a shortage of talent out there in, in security and it's high demand. Everybody wants yeah. the best people. So, and most of these really good security practitioners have their pick of where they could go. And then you have to bring them in the door and, and, you know, there's challenges with pen testers as far as just like, you know, maintaining that hacker ethos, if I, if I can say that, uh, what was your like method or how, how did you get good folks in the door and then kind of retain them, keep them over the long haul? So, it, there's a there's a difference between in that offensive security side, right? There's a mindset yeah. um, that you need to be able to be a successful offensive security person, either a you know pen tester, red team, or whatever. Um, mm -hmm. And it's not something that's traditionally by the book, right? It's generally it's it's outside the box. It's against the book. <laughs> it's the opposite of uh, of what people uh, teach you. Well, in theory, actually, even linguistically, it's reverse engineering, right? It's not engineering, which is you know yeah. what what gets taught. There's some so being able to Oh yeah, totally. Uh, I mean, being able to uh, find those individuals who have the excitement and the creativity, but still have the operational experience, because mm -hmm. you know, on that engineering side, you can't really, you know, you're not going to be an effective reverse engineer unless you know the concepts of engineering it in the first place. So being able to find that comp that combination is, is really tough. So looking for those kinds of uh, individuals, you're looking for people who think outside the box, people who are uh, questioning everything they they see. They already have a you know a basis. They're a puzzle solver. They're um, they're you know they're they have that level of creativity. Um, that comes with uh, with those things that you're talking about, which is the, a bit of subversiveness, uh, a little bit of uh, anarchy, uh, and embracing that um, is was one of the things I did early on. Right, um, instead of yeah, we were that we would allow people to be able to explore their own creativity. Um, our organization operated a little bit differently than the rest of the company. The rest of the company was very audit driven, right? And if you think of auditors and you think of a pen tester, they yeah. are opposite ends of the spectrum, right? Um, yep. And that's, uh, that's the, the culture we embraced, right? It was, it was a little bit like, you know, pirates and whatnot. It was, you know, in comparison.
I, that's, yeah. a, that's kind of a, that's sort of a silly analogy, but that's, uh, you know, sort of the feel that we had. Did you guys have recruiters seeking or were you, was it like very organic where you were like, you know, on discord servers, meeting people and they were just <laughs> attracted to, to labs or what was the process to actually find and vet people? Well, there sure, certainly was, uh, was the pro was, uh, a, a who, you know, right. Yeah. Um, and there was a lot of sifting through, um, you know, uh, through people who were, you know, well qualified to do things, um, but you know, may not have had the right that right mindset. Um, we did grow ourselves a recruiting team. Um, it was uh, it was pretty effective, um, but it was still it's still an uphill climb um, mm -hmm. because it's a, it's a lot harder to put on paper that mindset. Oh, yeah. Um, the hacker mindset, it's like, oh, what's your qualifications? Oh, it's the hacker mindset. It's right here. Yeah, it's, I've, got a, I've got a certificate in hacker mindset. I mean, that's just something that doesn't really exist. So yeah. working with a, with a recruiter, it's, just, it's tough to be able to handle their frustration by not being able to source correct candidates over time. Yeah. Is there stuff that you look for that, that you know, outside the technical stuff and certifications, are there like certain attributes that you can kind of just tell, okay, this is going to be a great candidate? Because uh, I, I guess there's also a difference because in industry, you kind of a security anal uh, analyst, you know, someone who might be, you know, a security operations center behind a screen, they can really get in deep on the technical side. They can be introverted and, you know, as much as they want. Whereas pen testing on the consulting side's a unique beast because you're almost looking for a unicorn. You're looking for someone who can communicate, totally. that can op interact with a client, has at least some amount of ability to articulate and they also have to be probably the best technical person in the room too. So it's really hard to find those kind of individuals. Is, are there things that you were looking out for like during the interview process or anything that you just kind of knew that person was going to be great? Well, from a background perspective, I'm a huge fan of developers and that might have to have, yeah. that has a little bias on what my background looks like. Um, Cause that's what I first got into when I got into it, but yep. um, you know, looking at you know what those what those types of skills are and what you can tell it's really it's really about what they do from a creative pers perspective do they do they make things do they build things do they solve their own problems with code um, and that's something that really makes some people makes people successful um, there are really really smart yeah I'm going to say sysadmins even though it's a deprecated term I think nowadays but uh, um, there are some really smart uh, engineers and sysadmins that, mm -hmm. that that understand you know what they're doing but there's if they're not someone who scripts their self or automates the, their way uh, through making their life better, right? That's going to be one of those things that is a, that's, it's a detractor, right? I'm looking for people who are, I typically, I'm looking for people who, who want to, uh, want to make themselves better through automation and coding. And that's yep. usually, you know, what we end up with, uh, with somebody who has the right mindset for pen, for pen testing. Um, one of the questions I always ask people in interviews, is you know what's on what's on their GitHub, right? What have you yeah. got? If, if the answer is nothing, <laughs> it's like uh, okay, <laughs> you know that's a that's definitely a step backwards. I mean, it's not. I'm not saying that people can't make it that way, but uh, being able to to showcase creativity is huge. Yep. Yeah, I agree. That's what what we look for too. That mix of like uh, creativity and technical technical acumen. Uh, like folks who are building stuff have, you know, uh, one of our engineers that turned out to be a kind of great pen tester built like a um, NFL, like a, um, a scoring thing where they were calculating all the scores and kind of had a NFL thing. And I was looking at it, I was like, well, this is awesome, but this is also something you just did because you wanted to and you're curious about it. And, and you can just kind of know that person is going to be pretty solid because <laughs> yeah. they're a tinker. Totally. Um, so shifting gears just a little bit, um, 
So recruiting, pen testing, um, eventually you grew the organization to a hundred or so people where you did, you no longer had span of control. You probably knew everybody by name, I'd imagine, but it was probably just yeah. barely. Um, what, as a leader of an organization, you know, what, what's that dynamic for? Like if you're a CISO or if you're a practice leader of a hundred pen testers, like how, how does your focus shift from, you know, maybe early on you were a practitioner later on, you're a manager and a leader of people. What were some of those things you were focusing on at that level? Right. Well, I tell you, in a professional services uh, company, uh, you're, you know, um, there's a lot of dealing with spreadsheets, right? There's a lot of dealing with numbers and spreadsheets and marketing yep. and product positioning and all these other things that are really cool. Um, but boy, that isn't why I got into security, right? So there was a huge, there was a personal shift. You know, it's like, what do I want to do? What do I want to do with myself? Do I want to be the the best hacker in the world, which I was never cut out to do? But you know, I had I had hopes and aspirations. Do I want to do that, or do I want to uh, motivate and drive a team. Uh, and yep. motivating and driving a team really was more suited for my skill sets, let's put it that way. Um, and uh, being able to be able to do that was a decision point for sure in my career. In fact, I have a boss, Mike Bearfield, to give him a shout out. Um, Mike Bearfield told me once, he said, hey, you know, you kind of you kind of got to make a decision. Do you want to run the team or do you want to be the best guy on it? I'm like, yeah, yeah, good point. Yeah, so that was a that was a big step for me, and being able to take that step um, and being able to move forward with it really helped me, you know, helped me see where I was going to go instead of being sucked down into the into the geekery because that's fun. I mean, it's all fun stuff. I told those, I I still do. I have uh, job envy every day from the cool stuff uh, these guys get to do because there's a lot of cool stuff we did when we were there um, and still get to do, but. You know, looking at it and understanding how to uh, get through the organizational dynamics. First, there's the teaming of, uh, you know, the high-end engineers and being able to, you know, understand the care and feeding of that. And then it's the care and feeding of uh, the leads of the teams of the high-end engineers. And then it's the leads of multiple uh, leads. So I've got, you know, a couple layers uh, where I got to. And, uh, you know, when we were at that size, and it still are, it still is, <laughs> um, it's 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 a whole different thing to to run and manage um instead of being a security practitioner and helping you know an organization but myself it's the organization helping an organization and it's a different relationship it's it's a lot different and it grew um it it grew it grew it's it's kind of hard to to really explain as you can tell as i stutter <laughs> how the diff how it's a completely different uh it's a completely different lifestyle yeah. that i have now than i had 10 years ago when starting that mm -hmm. team i know one thing i read recently from i think like y combinator or something uh that was relevant to our journey but probably relevant to yours as they grew and they're like there's two things that leaders can't uh can't delegate you can't delegate the mission and the vision and you can't delegate hiring top managers and and i've found for me trying to run an organization that's pretty true like every day i have to pound the drum on the mission and the vision and like you know the strategic roadmap where we're going the why behind all of this and then um <laughs> the faster we grow the more i find that like hiring top managers and really good people who are on board with the culture and also have the vision and can develop others becomes more and more my job and that's at the company level was that true for you like just running a large practice Oh yeah, well you're just picking on two things I screwed up pretty royally at for certain points. <laughs> I don't know, don't know if I want to talk about that, but uh, yeah, the uh, you know having the vision, vision and the mission, and being uh, seeing 
uh, where the future is going to go, right? I knew what I wanted yeah. to do, and I knew what I wanted to be when I got there. Uh, it took a while, uh, but we were able to build that team. Um, building that team is an uphill battle when you're in a professional services only company, right? There's no, there are no software sales. There's no product sales to be able to support. It is literally all selling the services of people and making the investments to be able to grow those and to become that top leaders is, uh, is, is pretty hard to do. So, you know, seeing, seeing that vision, understanding, I did not communicate what I wanted to be or where I, and where I wanted to be uh, in the right terms, in business terms. Um, mm -hmm. And that's one thing is huge, right? Understanding that it's, um, you know, how does this benefit the business? Not just from an altruistic, oh, well, we'll be the best. And the best is always the best. Well, it's not true. It's, you got you to break it down um, when communicating these things and being able to drive uh, your vision. I think I would have made uh, progress a lot quicker um, had, I, had I done that. Yeah. Um, the other one, which is uh, hiring the right uh, managers. So historically speaking, not only in, uh, in every organization I've been in, um, I don't want to throw, I definitely don't want to talk bad about anybody here, but um, every IT company that I've seen, customers that I've worked at or whatever, we've taken some of the best and brightest minds and promote them into management positions. Yep. And they may not be the right mind for a management position. They may not just, they don't want to do it, right? Uh, it's never about um, where we can take that individual. It's about, oh, that's the the best person, they're going to be the team lead and they're going to be able to lead it and manage it and deal with the people issues and all those other things. But that's not true. Um, and we have failed uh, a lot of times. There's a, um, a guy who I'm, you know, I, a person I still talk to um, quite uh, re with reasonable frequency that uh, is somebody who, who left because they didn't want to take that step uh, and be in that position of management, although, you know, it was a very logical thing for us at the time. That was a that was a huge learning uh, point in in mm -hmm. my career as well that uh, that we don't you don't necessarily need to have the the lead dog you know be the be the uh, the manager. Yeah, security is interesting in the the phenomenon that exists. Have you ever heard of the Peter Principle that people yeah. rise to their level of incompetence? So I feel like yep. that's rampant in security because traditionally, what you do really in consulting in general is the people who get promoted to management are the best subject matter experts. They're high performers. They you know, are great consultants. Then one day they find themselves in a management position where they're supposed to lead people, but no one's given them any training and they have zero experience on what that looks like. So uh, I've long thought that, you know, I work with a couple guys from the army and they're the opposite, right? They don't learn any technical skills, but they learn tons of leadership skills. Right. Whereas we learn a lot of technical skills and no leadership skills. And if we could somehow merge those to identify like fledgling leaders a little earlier in the process and then give those folks leadership skills and say, hey, look, this is how you're going to have to develop a team. And this is what it means to be a manager. Like a manager right. is not just a really good consultant. It's a manager of yep. people and, and leadership. So uh, yeah. probably a topic for a different day. But that's, that's always yeah. been something in the back of my mind that we need to work on as an industry. Yeah. And it's a desire thing. Right. Yeah, <laughs> that's one thing that sure. uh, it gets sideways because you, you can teach how to consult and how to how to how they, you can teach the soft skills. You can teach the tech skills. You can't teach the mindset. You can't teach the desire. Those things just don't necessarily yeah. flow. And and it's hard for the ego to take a step back and be like, look, I don't want to be a manager. Like, I'm happy oh, yeah, to be totally. a really good consultant. Like anyone who can do that, I'm impressed with. If you can do enough self-evaluation to opt out of management, that's interesting. Um, which good segue. So in our industry, you know, I guess the top that you can 
try to achieve arguably is becoming a, a CISO or chief information security officer. And those look, I've seen folks who come from like a COO background or a CFO background that find themselves in the CISO position because they're great leaders. I've seen uh, subject matter experts rise to the level of being a, a CISO. And what a CISO is, I think, is up for debate. At one organization, it might mean application security. At another organization, it might mean chief compliance officer. But I guess if you take the general uh, CISO position, one of the questions that um, I always get asked from CISOs is like, you know, what's the one thing I should focus on? Like, if there's a million different things I should focus on, like, where do I start? So I, I'll ask you, if what's the biggest bang for a CISO's buck if they want to start somewhere? Sales and marketing. And what I mean by that is that in a CISO's position, you can generally support yourself with a staff of subject matter experts that know the right thing to do. Um, but it's all about selling that and being able to get buy-in across an organization to be able to get the resources you need to be able to do the thing that's the right thing to do from a best practice security perspective. So I know that's not where yeah. you're going, I don't think. Um, but that's I what... I've, that's why I've seen his success. Like those those individuals who can communicate uh, what what's on their agenda in the terms that they're that the people they're communicating to can understand um, are are highly successful. Um, they have they they can uh, build. It basically looks like a high performance high performing organization because they always have the right funding and they always have the right support. And across the company, all the other uh, you know organizations or divisions within the company you know are behind it and they and they get the mission. Um, and it's that level of communication which is key. Um, but if we're talking about technically speaking, what's what's uh, what's one thing a, C a CISO can do for the most bang for their buck? I'd say it's it's a little cliche. And it's getting a little long in the tooth by now, but it's hardened their internal uh, Windows environments. Uh, a Windows enterprise environment um, is uh, is a soft and chewy thing, if not hardened. Um, yeah. LLMNR, NetBIOS, uh, any of the uh, SMB uh, security mechanisms, all of that stuff. Um, I mean, it's like you can. You can we we used to make fun of it a little bit. It's like you can almost write a successful penetration testing report before you even do it. <laughs> In a yeah. lot of cases, because there's a lot of the same um, that we see across the organizations that we've worked for. So I I want to talk about both of these. The first thing you said in this technical uh, area, but I, I love what you said, sales and marketing. So one thing, I think that it is easy to fall in the trap as a security professional that you're the hammer and everything is a nail. So what I mean by that is uh, the places that you're very tempted to start are security frameworks. Let's take on NIST or ISO or some security framework, or let's purchase some suite of tools that I've been promised will you know alleviate all of my security problems. But to your point, I think the, the first thing to ask is my objectives should be the business's objectives. So what does my business want to do? Because sometimes security is about revenue generation. I have to, you know, build a security program so that my partners feel good about using my SaaS platform. Other times it might be regulatory. Other times I might have some healthcare data that's, you know, I can't lose at any cost. So I have to build a true security program. And I think understanding that will help you attach yourself to the positive business outcome of your team. Say, look, this yep. is why we need this from, from a business perspective. This revenue generating, this is a deal breaker from us if we lose data. And that's what business folks understand. You know, your sales team, your CFO, your CEO that is probably your project and budget sponsor. 
they're going to understand those consequences. If we don't do this, we're not going to be able to enter this market. And guess totally. what? Budget materializes out of thin air. But it's so attract yeah. attractive just to, to go straight to the framework or buy the tool yeah. and well, skip that stuff. Yeah, frameworks are good. Frameworks are, I always treated them like a reminder checklist, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's the things that one should be doing if you have a fully blown out security program. You can refer to a framework um, as you have a program that works for your business. Um, you can refer to a framework as, oh, Perhaps we should improve here because this is, you know, something that was, you know, that's, that's in this common framework that we don't really address, right? We don't do it great. Something, something where we might want to, uh, you know, put some resources to. And that's those. That it's a good, it's a good checklist. It's a good reminder. It's a good uh, refresher course, even sometimes. Um, but there was a guy uh, that I worked with out at Rocky Flats. His name's Scott. Um, smart, smart smart guy. <laughs> One of the smartest guys I've ever met, I'd like to say. Um, but we were talking about you know, risks and threats and vulnerabilities and things like that that are on our, uh, on our uh, organization's network or you know, that we thought might be or whatever. And he boiled down and said, hey, you know, the thing I'd be most scared of if I was uh, you know, in a leadership position here at the bomb plant, uh, which by the way is now closed. And so we're not really sharing. Into, we're not sharing. We're not oversharing here. <laughs> this is, um, yeah, this was a uh, this is all in the past. But uh, he said, I'd be worried if there was an internal threat that would uh, basically change all of our findings for our radiological measurements off by one here and there, so they're not reproducible and they don't make sense. That would shut down our operations. We would never make our closure date. We would forfeit billions of well, I don't know, millions. I guess I wasn't in the know uh, of what the bonus was to be able to close that the bomb plant down by 2006. And it was just like the most devastating thing ever. Um, and that was a great, that was great insight into the power uh, that security has if you put it in business, uh, in business, in a business perspective. Um, one of the other things that happened there is we had a, uh, we had a very highly priced, or at least I thought at the time, uh, assessment come out uh, to uh, work on our uh, business recovery or disaster recovery and business continuity plan. One of the things is identifying what the criticalities of the systems are that are used at the plant site. Uh, they came back and they said, the training system, number one, most important system that you have at the plant site. And I swear to God, if my organization at the at bomb plant would have said that, we'd have been laughed right out of there. Um, but uh, it turns out that the training system is attached to uh, the things that allow people in through their you know, palm scans or whatnot. So they can go in and do the work of tearing the buildings down, packing them up in little containers and shipping them off to nuclear uh, waste facilities. But they were right. It was just, it was impressive. And that perspective also helped me lean towards, you know, what actually does matter. It's not communications. It's not, you know, uptime in the networks. It's the training system that's available at the door scanner, right? Yep. This is to just be able to, you know, ensure that people have the right training to be able to go into the building. So um, those are, you know, that's, I think security as an enabler uh, also plays a role, as you'd mentioned. Sorry, I'm going on and on because this is a hot topic with me, right? It's it's aligning uh, the security program to what the business is doing. Um, security as an enabler is huge too. Um, just like you said, anybody with a platform uh, really needs to be able to demonstrate security, and not just through the SOC uh, and SOC 2 uh, type uh, reports or compliance reports, but legitimately like, uh, you know, the open door, right? Um, Microsoft does internal red teaming and they they publicize that they do it and they publicize that they do it frequently they won't share you what the results are um, but they will tell you all about their methodology and everything they do in fact you can find a lot of it online 
great yep. stuff to have that kind of transparency. Yeah, I think it's just a mark of the times, like everybody's trying to step up the game and the, the visibility. So you mentioned pen testing. So you've been in the game for a while now. Um, what do you think if I'm shopping around, I'm a CISO or I'm an IT director and I'm looking for a good pen test firm? Um, what are some of the hallmarks of a, of a good pen test firm? Like, hey, these, you know, let me let me start by saying this. Uh, pen test firms come in a lot of shapes and sizes. There's some fantastic, amazing ones. And then there's some that are fly by night. You know, they uh, you know claim they're doing automated uh, pen testing, but maybe you're really buying a vulnerability scan and it's not not what you thought it was. Um, I think that has created a lot of confusion in the marketplace. It's kind of hard to purchase the service, especially if you're not in the know or non-technical. Are there a few things that, like if you're kind of coaching a CISO to, you know, purchase a good firm or find a good partner, anything you would look for? Well, there's a lot of word of mouth, right? If you're looking for, uh, you know, some, for an organization that does really good work, um, it's a small industry. Um, penetration testing is one of those things that everybody has to do. Um, so yeah. there's always trusted advice, right? Getting it from uh, individuals you know. But uh, looking for a top-notch penetration testing company, I'd say it's one that, uh, you know, I've been involved with. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Either present or past or future. Um, no, it's uh, from a uh, what makes a good uh, penetration testing company and things to look out for. Uh, first of all, quality of sample reports. If, if the sample report does not make you feel warm and fuzzy, your, your actual report is not going to make you feel warm and fuzzy. It's got to be a high quality deliverable because that one piece of paper, one piece of paper, uh, like the, like it's delivered on paper anymore. But uh, that, uh, that deliverable um, is the thing that you're left with as a buyer. Um, it's what you got. It's like, no matter how cool the experience was, all these guys were awesome and they were able to, to root these things up and show us this and demonstrate that, yada, yada, yada. Six months down the road, you have this report. Um, and if you, you know, if you don't have an ongoing relationship, um, that's all you have. So if you, if you don't feel right looking at their sample work, you're not going to feel right looking at their ongoing work. So that's, yeah, I, that's definitely one. Yeah, I, I kind of think of it almost like we, some of the stuff you were mentioning earlier about hiring a full-time pen tester. It's like, do they have uh, a GitHub uh, repo that you can review? Are they putting out thought yeah. leadership? Do they have research projects? Do they have references that you can speak to? Um, some of that stuff's hit me as you're speaking. I'm like, yeah, it's a lot of the same stuff, I think, that you can use to kind of vet a pen test firm. Yeah. So with that creativity in mind, uh, with... You know, a good pen tester is a, in my perspective, is a, is a real creative person. Uh, that real creative person has an outlet for the creativity. So looking at organizations that have an R&D ca capacity that, uh, that make the investments, um, that provide the resources, which is, you know, mostly time uh, for their, for the, you know, for their engineering teams to be able to explore the things that are, that could be possible to help automate answers to, to problems. Because penetration testing has always been a, uh, a pretty manual approach. But it yeah. certainly benefits from lots of automation because, you know, just like uh, we were talking about early before I was talking about was uh, sometimes you can write the report before you even start the engagement. Well, there's a lot of things that sort of feed into one another. And there's been a lot of automation, a lot of impressive automation that's been done uh, over the years. But there's always room for more discovery and more research and those kinds of things and being able to support that, like you said. A GitHub, right? Does a, does a company have an R&D uh, capability? Do they actually publish information? Do they give back to the community? Are they making themselves better? Are they providing a place where their their super smart people can go make themselves super smarter, right? That's the kind of thing that uh, that's a, a good sign of what kind of quality you're going to get based on the investments that the organization makes. 
Yeah, for sure. Are there, are there like tools? Are there things that you're excited about? Because like I know pen testing is is largely up to the creativity of the pen tester. You know, outside of some of the scanning stuff, um, there's a lot of network monitoring tools. Um, to me, there's no clear sign that security is going to go away. I mean, this is a problem that's here to stay. It feels like um, there's blockchain that people talk about. There's decentralization that's maybe interesting. There's zero trust environments. There's a lot of stuff out there. Is there anything that kind of excites you in the in the world of security tech that you think is interesting? Excites me and scares the crap out of me all at the same time. And uh, AI, right? So looking at all of the uh, artificial intelligence, machine learning stuff um, that's that's going on, if you throw quantum computing in there, I'll sound, start sounding like a conspiracy theorist. But um, looking at the AI side of it, uh, there's a lot of things that are quite promising. But... Uh, it is also my opinion that right now it's a little premature. <laughs> the solutions that are coming out that are that are AI, unless the A means algorithm, <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. the AI doesn't quite doesn't quite get there. Um, yeah. So I think it holds huge promise for the future. But I think right now um, there are a lot of things that are just a bit not not quite polished. Yeah, I mean one of the things that is on my mind too is with all of this new tech coming out is you have to take into consideration that there's still organizations that have like mainframe and AS 400, you know, systems <laughs> that are big, yeah. some of the big fortune 500, uh, or they have a traditional AD network. They're not even, they're just now transferring to the cloud or, you know, so we have everything in between. We have the, the young startups who are born and forged in the cloud and all the modern tech ecosystem. And then you have some organizations that are on legacy equipment and uh, maybe, considering moving to the cloud and that creates this unique environment where like what there's no uh single solution when it comes to security and you had mentioned a while back that uh the identity piece of it as people are moving from like on-prem to the cloud you know it kind of keeps you up at night you, you want to talk about that like companies moving to the cloud and the, and the threat unique threat environment there yeah well moving out of a traditional you know a traditional enterprise environment right which there is a lot of these you know, hybrid organizations that have a pseudo traditional enterprise environment. And most of their systems are at the cloud and they're using federated identities and all this other stuff to be able to help tie it together. It's the help tie it together. There is no real defined or uh, that's a bad, that's sorry. That's a terrible, terrible statement there. There isn't a well-defined uh, method to be able to tie these things together without some of the legacy technologies that you would have on a traditional uh, enterprise network. Um, that's that said um there's a lot of there's a lot of uh new solutions as well i mean being able to being able to tie like you're talking about identities um identity management through federated uh federated identities that are not your traditional say active directory environment um that are tied together through sso and saml and uh being able to provision across a variety of different vendor systems that are SaaS pl platforms uh, you know, in an automated fashion using uh, SAML and uh, what's the other one? SCIM, I think it is, um, if I got that right. Um, but that's, you know, being able to provision roles and things like that. It's been, it's come a long way because it was quite patchwork yep. uh, 10 years ago, nine years ago, whatever. Um, how old is the cloud? 2006-ish was uh, like like uh, pretty much when, what I remember. I mean, how old do you think of that? Yeah, I, I just I, I yeah. call it a teenager. That's how, that's yeah. my cat. It's like somewhere between thirteen and nineteen. <laughs> that's all right, yeah, I got fifteen. So, um, 
yeah, you know, and back then it was it was challenging. And plus, there weren't yeah. there weren't that many solutions. And as the solutions exploded, then it's like ah, tying tie all this stuff together feels a little afterthoughty, right? And it's always said yeah. security should be an afterthought, should be baked in. Well, you can't bake it in across a bunch of different providers. You can come up with some, a couple of different standards, um, and then those sort of are the way to go. It it's I think it's a challenge um, uh, to be able to get there, um, particularly with. The fact that this, they, I mean, the one thing I was just picking on right there is identities, right? Identity is the new perimeter, so they say. Mm -hmm. uh, I think I, I think I'm stealing someone else's quote there. Whoever it is, I wish I could give you props for it. <laughs> Somebody said it at one time, and they're right. Um, with identities, the new perimeter, it's it's even more important to be able to get this right, uh, to be able to centrally uh, manage it, um, centrally audit it for sure. Um, yeah and be able to uh to be able to build your organization around it or build it around your organization not sure which yeah i mean Chicken the whole question working, yeah i mean it's like i don't know the legacy to new stuff's always hard because you have backwards compatibility there's just a million things and, and that's one of the reasons i don't see this problem going away or getting much easier you know um so i'm going to shift gears totally um and i wanted to I, I don't know if you know anything about this mike if you uh have any background or insight but if you do, I think it'd be cool. Uh, like curveball, here we go. Yeah, <laughs> it's not a curveball, but um, so I think one question that comes up, and I, I don't really know the answer to. I've seen, I've done some research on this. Is um, you know, people imagine hackers in, in the hoodie, you know, kind of thing, or the guy in the basement. Um, but there's clearly nation states. There's uh, there's one-off practitioners. There's insider threats. But from your experience, so you've, you've been around this for quite a while and, and, and been involved in incidents or at least, you know, kind of helped manage those before. Uh, from your experience, who, who are the, the hackers, if you will? Is it typically nation states? Is it one-off individuals? Is it some combination? Who, who are they? Well, that's a, that's a good question, right? When we talk about nation states and things that are actually organized by, by, by a, a, a nation, <laughs> I guess, yeah. uh, that's, it's, it's first of all, it's hard for me to comprehend. Second of all, attribution is really hard in cybersecurity, yeah. as we all know, right? I mean, I've been doing incident response in some capacity or another for 20 years. And being able to actually identify the who behind what the attacker was is really hard. Um, there are companies that have been doing this for a really long time and putting together things that look like profiles of certain kinds of attackers that have, uh, you know, cute names like Fancy Bear or whatever that are, that are, you know, doing a specific thing, but they don't know really who they are. They believe that they're nation state uh, actors, but not really. So is it organized crime? Is it something that's well-funded that can put a bunch of people together to perform one thing? Sure. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it's, uh, it is really an organized group. I'll give you an example here, a topical example. Uh, Oh shoot! What is it? What's the name? The Reddit, um, Wall Street Bets. Yeah. Yep. Right. That's a, that looks like it was a big organized financial thing, but you know what it was? It was a couple of posts out to Reddit. That's it, and it just it, it drove a, the price of a stock through the roof, and it became national news. Right? Is that similar to the groundswell of uh, of these uh, groups of criminals, cyber criminals, being able to come together? Is it sort of organized crime? I guess um, it's hard to say. There's there's quite a lot of it. The one thing I will say that I have never seen, I have never seen uh, corporate espionage. I've never seen one company hack another. The only thing I've ever heard about are things that I wouldn't even consider hacking. Um, 
oh man, it was a long time ago. A long time ago, <laughs> there was uh, the Houston Astros were, uh, were, were there was, they were involved in a scandal because uh, they gained access to someone else's database. They gained access to the database because it didn't require a password. So it's like, it's like, is that really hacking if somebody doesn't actually secure something, right? Yeah. yeah. It's, it's like they hacked them by, oh, uh, looking up <laughs> what was available. It's kind of an interesting thing, but I've never seen a case um, that I know of off, you know, off the top of my head of one organization uh, being found guilty of uh, attacking another organization. But that's a huge thing. But it's huge to, to keep in mind for sure. Um, one thing that I will mention is there was, there was a company, the closest thing I came to, that, I, that I saw of this was there was an organization that did, um, it was a service organization. I'm going to be pretty vague here, but, uh, they, they, uh, did a lot of things for a bunch of different companies from a, from a management distribution perspective. Um, they had some really big clients, uh, they held on to some technology to help some of their biggest clients uh, activate their products. Um, they thought that they were just, you know, activating products and they're shipping things and they're getting things from one place to the other and they're fulfilling orders and whatever. Uh, turns out that little piece of technology was hugely valuable to the hacker or to the underground community that wanted access to these uh, to these systems. Um, so basically, the the learning the the lesson in that was that all of their customers, adversaries were who they need to protect their own operations from. They like inherited the threat of everything from uh, like a dairy farm uh, to a tech provider to, you know, everything. It's like anybody who had anything out for any of those organizations was going to be looking to infiltrate this company because of their position in the supply chain. It was, right. yeah, it was, it was huge. It was, it was greatly eye-opening. Yeah. I like the Wall Street bets analogy you gave because I read some research on this recently that said uh, outside of like perhaps nation states, like if China or someone has a, you know, part of the military doing it or something like that, that it's kind of organized in uh, like loose hives where maybe uh, maybe people are contracted out or maybe you kind of know someone from an online presence. So you group together to do something. But it wasn't like people sitting in an office building typically you know, right. plotting something. It was kind of like a, a loose connection of each other, which made it notoriously difficult to, you know, prosecute anyone or stop it from happening. And I think yeah. the Wall Street bets thing is probably not unlike what's happening in the uh, commercial side of the of the you know, unethical hacking equation. Yeah. But instead of finding it on Reddit, you find it on the dark web. Yeah, Tor, Tor. or whatever. Yeah. Um, so I actually think that um, one of the, you know, perhaps bigger threats is um, corporate America in some in some ways when it comes to privacy, um, because one of the things that we have done is, you know, uh, we we acted before we thought, should we act? You know, the, the old old saying. So you look at like social media and stuff, they're collecting everything and then throwing ads at you. And now regulations are coming down and we're trying to think, should we be doing this? Uh, do data subjects have rights? Uh, should they be collecting all of this? So when it comes to privacy, I always like to ask folks like you, are, are there are there certain uh, are there apps or things that you use or don't use that you're like, because you're privacy and security conscious that, you know, I, I talked to Ryan Bazden, which is one of our pen test guys, and he has like Graphene OS on his Droid device and doesn't use any of the normal operating systems. Is there anything like that that you do that you use or avoid? I 
you know what? It sounds it sounds funny. It sounds hypocritical, uh, but I there I don't have that high a standard. However, I operate very skeptically. Um, yeah. So from my my personal operations, uh, you know, with the technologies that I have, you know, in, within my house, my personal devices, things like that, I really I don't I'm not an early adopter. <laughs> I'm not uh, uh, I'm not someone who's gonna jump out and uh, and grab the latest technology and uh, try to leverage it to whatever for whatever yep. use it is, but I'm going to use it. And I find that that's the usefulness of technology outweighs the privacy need. We hear lots about privacy, but man, I tell you, when I, out of, maybe it's just the people I hang out with, but out of anybody I talk to, I am stunned at how little they really care about privacy. Yeah. Right. I mean, I, I was on a I was on a, a, a Zoom call a while ago, uh, and uh, it was kind of a happy hour situation. Uh, I said, "Oh, let's all play Among Us." It's like, "Well, what's Among Us?" Oh, just go download it. Really? <laughs> that was it. It was just like, "Okay, cool, it sounds fun." And then, bam, everybody downloads it, figures out how to play Among Us, and it was actually kind of fun. But the point is, it was fun. Uh, did it have privacy concerns? Sure as heck could have. I mean, that's just one perfect example of just download an app from somewhere and just yeah, trust me. Right. It's because uh, I think that I think there's your average Joe doesn't really care. And your average Joe probably wouldn't want to deal with any of the, the pain in the neck of trying to maintain privacy and security, to be perfectly honest. Yeah. Um, there was a guy I knew who said uh, he likes to live like his information is already compromised. <laughs> so so if I do that, then when the inevitable happens, yeah, it'll be no big change. So well, how do you do that? He goes, yeah, I'm going to go off the grid. <laughs> well, that doesn't help, right? That's kind of like the, the polar opposite. That's like coming full yeah. circle on the, on the yeah. not caring anymore uh, to making it impossible. Is there anything you think we can do to like get the average Joe to care more? Like you think it's just like public, like getting into the social consciousness or you think there's anything that can be done or you think this is just kind of uh, what we have to accept? I don't know. I think uh, given, you know, the how many uh, people are on the planet and how many people have access to technology and how, how ubiquitous can access to this information become, right? I think the odds are against us. I think having yep. a, uh, you know, looking at generations to come, that's spoken like an old man, isn't it? But you know, looking at my kids who've had uh, some kind of a device in their hands since they were five or so, um, yep. You know, I think that there's going to be a different perspective on this as we get there, because it's going to be a greater impact on what happens when you lose access to something or some of your information is, you know, something bad happens. And those formative lessons early on, I think, is going to help change how that that operations perspective. Like I said, when I, I operate quite skeptically, I, I figure that uh, we're going to probably see that as well in the next generations of technology users. Yeah, I agree that I think there's perhaps two saving graces. One is it seems like everything's a cycle. So, uh, you know, I'm on my phone a lot and, uh, you know, addicted to technology like like a good millennial should be. Uh, but my daughter calls me out on it all the time. She's like, Dad, why are you on your phone? Like, even if I'm just looking at the time, because when I get home, I try to be pretty good about not having it. So part of me wonders if like her generation is going to rebel against the, the phone oh, nice. and the technology. So, so maybe there's something like that. Maybe we'll get a new cycle where they're like putting it down and you know, our technology overlords no longer rule us in that generation. Uh, the other thing that gives me some hope 
is um, I was doing a podcast with one of our privacy fellows. His name's Phil Bredney. And there's this new um, way of looking at privacy that some organizations are taking called the fiduciary standard. And the idea being, if you have a financial advisor, you know, they're trusted with your money and they're supposed to make the right decisions by you and act in your best interest at all times. And the idea is if you view data as a digital asset, then all the companies who collect it should be acting in your best interest and uh, be held accountable for it and, you know, asking, should they do this? And if you could somehow either self-regulate or maybe with formal regulation enforce that there, you know, there could be something done there. I don't have, I don't know how that's going to shake out yet, but I like that people are thinking about it. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's good, but yeah, there's also the, you know, what does in your best interest mean? What kind of usage are you, what oh, yeah. are you going to forego if you don't actually allow the sharing? It's like the, yep. it's like the cookie things. Uh, when the, when all the privacy regulations went through, it's like, oh, the site yep. uses cookies. Do you want to accept our cookies or would you like to break the internet? Yeah, exactly. I think there cool. needs to be a, uh, another, another layer to that for sure. Yeah, I agree. Um, so last question. So I, have the opportunity to talk to like a lot of people on a mentor basis or folks looking for jobs, college students, that kind of thing. Um, and a lot of folks want to break into security, which is great because like we said earlier, there's a big talent shortage. And uh, for some reason, it seems like there's this weird area where it's hard to break into the security industry, but once you're in there, you know, you can, you have your choice of jobs. So if you, if you had to start over and you're, you know, 20 years old, coming out of college or even considering if you're going to go to college and you wanted to get into security, um, what would you focus on? How, how would you get in the door? Are there, are there new technologies, things that you would kind of coach that person to focus on from a security perspective? If I was 20 years old again? <laughs> so if I was 20 years old again, I probably would have given up the uh, hair, metal, hair metal cover band <laughs> scene in Albuquerque and went to the uh, country band scene, maybe learn some banjo. But... Uh, if I was 22 today, uh, what would I what would I do to be able to get into uh, security? Well, there are a lot of tracks that are uh, made for security. We see degrees, masters um, in uh, having a security focus uh, in 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 higher ed, and I think that's amazing because back in the day uh, that didn't really exist. Uh, management information systems degree from you know 1991 is entirely worthless now. Right. I mean, it's just uh, some of those things that it was kind of worthless then. But now uh, with security being able to uh, to be you know, within higher ed curriculums, um, I think it's a it's a great launching point. But in order to actually break in, um, you know, there's a there's a level of acceptance. Right. I mean, I started as a network analyst because I thought, hey, if I play my cards right, I can actually you know break into things and hack sort of, you know, to be able to test uh, the defenses of yada, yada, yada. Um, but uh, you know, being able to take that step and understand that you, there's an entry-level position uh, within security, and uh, sometimes that's a little brutal. Um, that's you know something I think it's, it's sort of taking the bad with the good, because um, yeah. it can give you that uh, you know career in security. And once you're in security, I don't think you ever leave. Yeah, I don't think so. There's no reason yeah. to. I always tell people like it's kind of a, one of those who you know things too. It's like don't undervalue networking, talking to folks like yourself and and our team on campus and sometimes that's all you need to get into the door, but that's not security specific. That's anything. Yeah. Awesome. True. Well, that was all of my questions. Thanks, Mike. That was awesome. You bet. Great conversation.